When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks. In the summer of 1983, July 19th to be exact, my good friend Carl Rusk and I drove up from San Diego to Los Angeles to interview Sean Bonnewell of The Music Machine for issue number two of Ugly Things. For Bonnewell, it was the first interview he'd given since the demise of the music machine at the end of the 60s. For me, it was the first interview I'd conducted, period. So we rang the buzzer of the apartment complex where he lived with some trepidation, unsure of what to expect. The music machine were one of my favorite groups, still are. Their sound was so different and innovative. Bonnewell's song so compelling, cerebral even. And then there was their image, their look. Dyed black hair, black clothes, black boots, and each wearing a single black leather glove. There wasn't a lot of information on the group at the time, not much press or fan magazine coverage back in the day, and very little of substance since then. So there was a strong aura of mystery around the group, and especially their charismatic leader and songwriter, Sean Bonnewell. Suddenly, there he was opening its front door to us. A handsome, middle-aged man, he was around 43 years old at the time, with longish hair and a bushy beard. After some brief chit-chat, we began the interview. The conversation began with Sean describing the changes that were happening in the music scene in the mid-60s. He'd been part of a folk group called The Wayfarers for several years who'd had some success and recorded three albums released by RCA in 1963 and 64. But by 1964, the folk boom had started to recede, and Bonnewell had a vision for a new band and a new and completely original sound. The industry was just really beginning, you know. Yeah. There was a lot of uh, movement or, or I should say, freedom of movement. I mean, if you had one in the grooves, there wasn't any ifs, ands, or maybes. You got a shot at it, because all there was was just money to be made. And you didn't have to really go through all these executive decisions and play all these games. Yeah. And uh, we got in to see... Uh, in fact, I took Talk 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 cost 150 bucks at Studio C, a four-track at RCA, to record. Come on in and talk, talk. Mm -hmm. You have money for it. Brian Ross, he, he had just formed a publishing company, and I don't know whether he'd ever done any producing. I doubt it. But he found us at the Hollywood Legion Lanes, which is a bowling alley. It was a, uh, we were playing to the tables and chairs, and he came in. A week later, we went over to Studio C. We were playing an all-original music machine. I had just, about a month before that, gotten Rhodes and uh, Mark. Doug was the last guy that joined the group. He was playing... Sessions keyboards for it, like he had played the keyboards on the associations along comes Mary and Cherish. And in fact, that's how I got Ron Edgar because I was in the Wayfarers in uh, the early 60s, which was a, a folk group. We're headed up this road with a song, we're headed up this bright road singing songs. We're headed up this road with a song, Lord, Lord, and we'd like you all to come on right along. We had three, uh, never, I'll show up. Here's, here's the three albums we did. And, uh, that's where I met all the people that became the Buffalo Springfield and the Birds and, and uh, just, they, they were all in folk music. Yeah. And we went to Charleston, South Carolina with a banjo player lived it was his hometown and the place just loved us i mean they had they had praise when we were coming we were like frank sinatra you know? 
And so we started our own club. And then the, the Beatles came out and it killed the folk craze. So the Hootenanny, because they overexposed everybody. And Ron came to town with a group called the Goldbriars, and they played our club. And I could tell he was really a good drummer, and he was just being wasted. He was a jazz drummer. And so I was ready to leave and come back to Los Angeles, and I got, I told the Goat Buyers if they gave me a ride back, I'd book him at the Ice House and the Troubadour and so forth and so on. So I managed him for about two and a half months, but I knew the group was going to break up. They had all kinds of problems, and I, and I wanted to get Ron to be my drummer. So I just thought I'd stick it out, you know. And I got on the jobs, and the group broke up, and... When we were, uh, we were, we had just finished this album, Live at the Hungry Eye, which was a great um, memory for me, and uh, because it was something that, that I had as a childhood dream. You know, that was the biggest club in the United States. The Hungry Eye was in its heyday, the show place to play. And we headlined in front of all kinds of people, Bill Cosby, and when nobody knew him. Mm -hmm. um, but I met... Uh, Jim McGuinn, when we were playing the Marin County Fair up there, and he was playing bass for Jackie and Gail. And Jackie and Gail were a female duo. Jackie was Randy Sparks' wife then, and Randy was just putting the Christie Minstrels together. And he did that by renting a big house. And he'd take all the folk people that were transient, and he'd say, you want a place to live and eat? You can live here. So that's how he started uh, that whole thing. And then... Uh, she divorced him, and he sold to Christy Mitchell for about $4 million. But then she married John Davidson. But anyway, McGuinn was playing stand-up bass. And in between the, uh, the, uh, the shows, we'd go back and uh, play Beatles songs. So it was just kind of coming to a head. And I, I was starting to put the, the idea for a rock group together in my brain. I started writing for it, too. And that's when I met McGuinn, and, and he asked me for a ride back to L.A., and uh, he told me that he was going to call his group the Jet Set. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a terrible name. But <laughs> so we kind of tried to talk each other into, uh, into our groups, but I wish he'd have been more convincing, because I should have I'd gone with him. I'd have, I'd have had a much different kind of career. But I really liked the rock. I, I really liked the power of it. And I was being artistically suppressed somewhat with the, the Wayfarers. That they they were very traditional in their musical approach, and I was so I was I was ready for rock and roll of my own, I guess you could say. When I when I left the Wayfarers and I brought the Goldbriars back here, I in fact I traded a twelve string in for uh, a what was it? Was it Gibson? I think so. So it was my first electric guitar, and I really didn't know how to play. I didn't know how to play folk guitar, but... Which last was acoustic? Yeah. Oh, there wasn't anything but acoustic. In fact, that was the purity of folk music. You know, that was the problem. That's why the folk rock era never materialized, because they wouldn't plug it in. See? I mean, yeah. if, you, if you electrified it, you, you destroyed the ethnic value of your right. art, see? Yeah. <laughs> so, and the birds were sold out. They'd give you a new hairstyle. I mean, when they played... The Troubadour, I never forget the first time I heard it. I just couldn't, the music was so, so loud that it was, you could scream as close as I am to you right now and you couldn't hear anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the Troubadour isn't that big either. Right. But it was pretty empty in those days and had just converted over. Doug Weston was actually almost a human being then. <laughs> Since had a frontal lobotomy or something. Uh, the power and the... Uh, freedom of expression. There was a lot of things happening socially then, too. You know, people just started smoking grass, and Kennedy had just been shot, so there was kind of a, 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 an unrest in the people. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was uh, a social reform in the anti-Vietnam situation, you know. And it was very real, and the country was really, there was a dichotomy that formed culturally and socially. And hair was the made the difference. Yeah. Historically, it's always had something to do with, uh, with those sort of expressions socially of uh, where you stand. But in those days, it was, it, it meant anti-Vietnam. It meant yeah. hippie. The Wayfarers had a clean-cut, collegiate kind of look, similar to the Kingston Trio. 
I asked Sean when he started growing his hair out. I think I, I started to feel my hair start to grow, and I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. The rest of the guys, did he feel their hair start to grow? No, they didn't. They, they thought they was going to come and go, but, you yeah. know, and uh, that's when, that's when it really started, because everybody started scrambling. They, anybody with any vision could see what was going to happen. And the traditionalists, of course, they won't have anything to do with it, but uh, money talks. And it was the, the whole society was ready for an expression, a whole different thing. Usually war is what is responsible for the influx of cultural uh, and artistic ideas. One mm -hmm. culture uh, just victorious over another, and that defeated culture absorbs the art, you know, science, and everything of the victors. Well, in this case, we didn't have a war, but we had a, a, a tremendous movement in the Beatles, which is really what happened. And then when they, they started going to Eastern mysticism and so forth and so on, they got everybody really interested in astrology and, uh, and the occult and so forth and so on. And so did I. I became interested in them, too. I asked Sean what kind of material he was writing as he made his transition from folk to rock music. So um, when you first started uh, writing like rock-type material, what sort of stuff were you writing? Well, uh, you mean musically or you mean lyrically or both? Both. Well, musically, I think that I, I really can safely say that I think the Music Machine was the first to do a, quite a few things we're taking for granted today. And one of them for sure was the accent on the bottom. I mean, I made everybody tune down a whole step. Oh, really? And uh, because there wasn't any technology to record that punch, you know, in your chest. Sometimes people chalk me down. Uh -huh. They say to me, oh, anytime it gets me. I had to find some way to reproduce that sound because I knew that in trying to record it, it wasn't going to make it, you know. So we not only tuned down a whole step, but uh, I made everybody play in the lower register. And I, and I forbid, in fact, I took Ron's cymbals away from him. I said, don't ever play cymbals, except for accents. And I have to really give him a lot of credit because uh, he, he really listened and he, he took his ability and he, He's a jazz drummer. I used to have to make him mad in order to play instead. Oh, the dance floor would be ridiculous. When we, when we played as a trio, well, the people would get up and they'd start to dance and they couldn't find the, the backbeat and they'd just start wandering around. <laughs> uh, so that's when I started writing real structured rock and roll, real structured arrangements and everything. And started spoon feeding uh, all of the music, except Keith was the only guy I didn't. I didn't uh, take what was going to be played. I let him have free reign on his bass line because it was fine, fine bass player, really good. In fact, he played the lead because I couldn't. I could play good rhythm guitar, but I, I never played lead. So when it was time to take an instrumental break, I just let Keith do it. And so it, that also accented the bottom of the sound. So and then he would do a break on the bass. Yeah, yeah. I think lyrically what, uh, what it appears to me I, I was reflecting was the uh, the introspective uh, examination of of what motivates young people. Uh, you know, it's not it, it isn't the it, the the me generation type thing. Although although I can say that this album here on Warner Brothers, uh, and I'm quoting Ross because he told me I was between 10 and 15 years ahead of my time. But I think that 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 uh, those songs there are very definitely forerunners of the lyrical uh, self-indulgence that you hear today. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, the music machine, well, the, the image, you know, it, it, it was really fierce in it. And I, we had one of like really expensive drugs and everything, but we were straight as an ice cube tray. Here I commented that the lyrics Sean was writing were really different from a lot of what was going on at the time. Songs like Talk Talk and Trouble and Wrong on their first album, and a lot of the songs on the second album seem to be expressing some sort of inner conflict or frustration, even anger. I asked Sean what the inspiration or motivation was for those emotions. I, I think that uh, the 
the confusion of not knowing who or what to blame for the natural conflict of, of youth, of growing up. What, what we're experiencing in today's music is, is, is the same thing. It really never changes, uh, and not even the structure and the form does. Although I, I'm not very impressed with the, all the songs sound like they're unfinished to me. You know, I mean, I'm a songwriter first. That's, you know, yeah. my crap. And, and uh, it doesn't sound like people are, are finishing their thoughts or are uh, either, either musically or lyrically. There's this tremendous fragmentation of, of ideas. And, and it's the same kind of conflict and the same kind of confusion. I mean, you get the nail on the head. That's, that's what it is. Look at the people in me, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And one of the things about being a songwriter is that your transparency is uh, uh, difficult to disguise. You really throw yourself out there. I mean, if you're an honest songwriter. I commented that a lot of songwriters were very superficial, but that Sean's lyrics were always fairly deep, serious, and meaningful. There were a few others, too, that, uh, that really got into it. And the thing about it was is that people didn't know who to blame, and the youth never does. You know, they, they blame the society and the structure of, of the, quote, adult world. I mean, that's always been there. And to some degree, there's an awful lot wrong that's, that is the establishment's fault, and, no, and that's always been true, too. But these truths that are continual are, are, are not going to change. So if you've got the intelligence and the sensitivity to understand yourself in that context, then uh, kind of an evolution of yourself takes place. And if you're a songwriter, you, you're going to write about what is most impressing you at the time and, and, and what you're going through. I had such a terrible time in high school because I was, a, uh, I was a good athlete and I was able to sing and perform at the same time. And, and in those days, that was, you know, well, being an athlete was, was synonymous with brain damage, first of all. And, <laughs> and secondly, being, uh, having the desire to be an entertainer, to stand in front of an audience, was synonymous with uh, people either thought you were funny around the edges or... Or they thought that you were, uh, you thought too much of yourself. And uh, so, I mean, I was going to fight every day. You know, it was just ridiculous. I asked how he yeah, did academically he did at school. Academically. That's a good question. I, you know, I, I think that myself included, most of us graduated because one day follows another. You know, it, it was almost unavoidable <laughs> because I did not study at all. But... I, I used a lot of tricks because I used to write very good poetry. And so instead of doing my homework, I'd, I'd write poetry in the morning and I'd bring it to the English teacher and she'd read it for the class. In fact, all of her classes. Then I'd get good grades without really um, studying grammatical structure. But I didn't have to because I'm a, I, that's one of the things I can do, praise God, that the, the Lord has given me an ability to formulate my ideas using the English language. But uh, I didn't start writing music until I was uh, 21. Yeah, so, um, so how old was he when Talk Talk came out, I asked? I was just a child. <laughs> I, was, I was 26. Commendably, Sean could also remember how old the rest of the band members were at the time. Drummer Ron Edgar, bass player Keith Olsen, keyboardist Doug Rhodes, and lead guitarist Mark Landon. They were, uh, Ron was 20, and uh, Keith was 24, Doug was 25, and Mark was 22. That's pretty good, John. The first guy that, that really got me excited about writing was Keith. And Keith was playing bass for uh, Gail Garnett. Remember, we'll sing in the sunshine. We laugh every day. 
and the song went on to say how that she would love the guy for a year and then dump him, you know. And she had a husband to play guitar for him, and she was true to her promise. So it was a cute little, it was the first feminist song with anti-love, anti-commitment, anti-human. <laughs> and they were on RCA, so we were on the same love, uh, label at the time when I was on the Wayfarers. And Keith and I would go into the dressing room and we'd jam. And uh, he, was, he was then madly in love with one of the famous Holmberg sisters from Minnesota. <laughs> and these two girls were singing in the Goldbriars. If you can keep this straight in your mind. But it's important to understand the background so that you can see how it kind of came together. And that's the same group that I brought back to get Ron. So Ron and Keith had known each other. But Keith was really the first guy. And we, we decided to start a group together. But at the time, he wanted to marry Sherry. And, uh, I mean, we didn't have any conception of the obstacles there was in order to putting a band together and so forth and so on. So he was really busy, and I really had to, I ended up doing it, basically. And uh, he was, in those days, well, he was a wonderful guy, very intelligent, sensitive guy, just a uh, real open. And, uh, I mean, he, he uh, flew us out of a storm. We, we were trying to make this gig in Minnesota somewhere, and, and it was a snowstorm, and the pilot was drunk. I mean, he was drunk, and it was a single-engine plane. We had all these Vox amplifiers in the back of this thing, and I thought it was over. And he landed that plane in that snowstorm. He never flown. He, he had flown, you know, he'd taken a couple of lessons, but he'd never landed an airplane before. Another time, we were in a big boat in a, st a storm out to sea, and he got us out of that, too. You know, I mean, he's just the most unassuming little guy, and he's got a brain like a whip. So he was really interested in recording, and, and, and uh, uh, he built the first fuzz box. You know that fuzz tone? Ba 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 ba. He built that. Yeah. He built that. He didn't use a box tone then. No way. No way. Wow. Everybody in, in in those days that were that were recording was trying to get a hold of that box because nobody could get that fat round. It's a different sound. Oh yeah. I asked Sean about the inspiration for Talk Talk, and this brought up the subject of his faith. He'd become a born-again Christian several years earlier. I was, uh, I was waiting for my girlfriend to get ready, and uh, she had about 20 minutes. She said, I'm going to be another 20 minutes. And so I started the song then, and uh, I'm a Christian now, so I, I know where it came from. I mean... Because those things, you know, when they come, they don't just come out of the air, you know. I mean, the Lord has a plan for you. There's no question about that. I mean, you can't see the total picture. You, you never really know. In fact, when Talk Talk hit KROA first time, I stopped on the freeway and I shook my fist at God. But I didn't do it in anger. I, I did it because I knew that He did it, see. That was the first time I ever really felt the presence of God and knew that he was working in my life. I kind of felt a little funny about doing that. I apologized to him, but I was kind of like you and me, you know. So the whole song came to him all at once, I asked? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, it did, uh, and and it was also the first kind of song, and about the only one I've ever heard that took the title and repeated it three times and only mentions it at the end of the song. And there's a, you know, I thought it was Japanese jazz when I first recorded. And, and as a matter of fact, it 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 laid around for a year. Uh, yeah. I wrote it in '65. Yeah, and then in '66 when we were going to get ready to. Uh, to, uh, I, drug, I drug it out about a week before we went into the studio. And uh, we just happened to play it that night that, that Ross was there. And uh, we put the final arrangement to it and then went in the next day and did it. Took two takes. Well, the reason is because the Wayfarers taught me about the value of rehearsing and the, and the value of, of being ready. Yeah. I spent five years with those guys and boy, I'm telling you, we just, you know, we had excellent management, too. They weren't good in terms of business, but they knew what was required of a group and what it took for a group to make it and to sustain itself. So I had some great habits, uh, and uh, I just I just beat those arrangements into the bones of the band. You know, I wouldn't... Right. 
Right. And again, Talk Talk also had a value of spontaneity. It sounds in that it was pretty fresh when you went into the studio. Yeah, well, because I I hadn't decided how I was going to sing it until the last minute. I, the arrangement was, was yeah, it was it was backwards. We could have done it. They could. But see, come on in was the was the original A side, and uh, I used to get letters from young girls, and they used to just I mean just just tear your heart out. I mean, it's how did you know this about me and all this stuff. Because you never know, you know, how someone's going to take uh, your painting or, or anything that you do artistically. But uh, the the musicians and the singers used to talk about come on in a lot to me, and I, and I used to be so flattered because they'd come up and they'd recite the lyric. They knew the song better than I did, and they'd say one line after another. And I said, "What do you mean here?" Um, the you know, the truth is, and I'm not being an opportunist as a Christian, I'm not being an opportunist when I say this, but the last line was supposed to be, come on in to the Lord. And um, I didn't, I, I changed it. I changed it three times. But uh, I finally just said, come on in, close the door. The basic inspiration was that it was a friend of, of my girlfriend. And she was like a world traveler. She used to go all around. She was very restless and kind of indicative of the mood of the day. And uh, she never uh, gave herself time to understand who she was. You know, I mean, in any setting, um, waiting to be seduced by uh, anything that was seductible. There's no such thing as an absolute, which is an absolute statement. But, uh, I I don't really know other than. A, a, a spiritual outreach and possibly a, a, it's seduction mentally, physically, and spiritually. That's what come on. We'll be right back. Before they became the music machine, Sean, Keith Olsen, and Ron Edgar worked for a while as a trio called the Ragamuffins. And Ron, I kind of ran that down to you, he, uh, he came from the Goldbriars, and uh, when they broke up, I, I, we became the Ragamuffins. And we played, uh, let's see, I think for about five months. It wasn't even that long. We did real well uh, for a trio, and uh, then... Um, so this, what sort of music you playing here? Was basic. It was the same music machine stuff. Oh really? Yeah. Well, we did some top forty, you know, but uh, because because we had to. But I was doing more originals and more originals. Then uh, we had this agency, and and uh, uh, they oh, they sent us up to San Jose, my hometown, to play. Uh, then we. The big thing was Batman and Robin, and they had they sent us and they said, "Would you go up and play for six weeks as Batman and Robin?" And we had to go get these masks and these costumes. Oh, that was just terrible! What a disaster! Everybody hated us <laughs> because we were we were doing music machine stuff. They couldn't figure out what in the hell was going on. So the last night of the gig, we we came out as a salad and played it, and then we went back to Los Angeles, and uh, I, Mark just appeared. He was working at a guitar store and uh, I mean it was just that simple we just got his name off of this board and called him he came I said Keith I said is he any good and Keith said yeah he's pretty good so I said okay he's in the band <laughs> I didn't even hear him play and I'd known uh, Rhodes Doug uh, because he's around the perimeter of uh, all the people that I'm talking about and he was like doing a lot of studio stuff and I just uh, I just kind of intimidated him into it I said, come on. So then uh, I dressed everybody up in black. And uh, uh, you know what? I didn't get much resistance to, to dyeing their hair. I thought I was going to have a real hard time with that hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. And we were in opposing sights of a whole. I mean, even because, uh, you see, I made the, we used to have to buy those dumb black gloves. And the story between that is before we went and we did something like 27. Um, 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 we did 12 American bandstands, I don't know how many other different kinds of TV shows. 
but we did like 26 or 27 where the action is. Remember that where the action? Well, they had us in every kind of setting. I don't know how many times we did lip sync, talk talk. Um, the, the, the first one we did was, was live, and we had all these black instruments and the black amplifiers and the black clothes. And Mark said, we, we need something else. <laughs> he said, let's wear gloves. And I said, oh, I said, well, yeah, we can't play. You know? and so I sent our manager down to get black gloves. I said, get the thinnest ones you can. They're 18 bucks a pair. They still are. Yeah, Kid glove, unborn calf, you know. And the, and the dumb things, you play in them and we perspire and you take them off and they shrivel up and harden and they're useless. So we'd have to get three and four pair uh, a week because you couldn't put your hand, I mean, you know what it's like to put your hand in a cold, wrinkled, unborn calf, you know? Oh, and it looked horrible and everything. So in order not to waste the other glove, I said, when we go out in public, when we're on tour, put the other glove on. So here we are. We didn't dress in black when we went out to restaurants and socialized, but we had this black hair and this one black glove on, and it was devastating. And you know what else it did? It gave the band the unity. It really drew us together, but, it w but we were very imposed. We asked why keyboard player Doug Rhodes wore the glove on his left hand. Because he had to do so much right-hand keyboard work, see? And he could chord with that thing. Yeah. In fact, he told me about a half a year after we were, we were rolling, and he said, he just got to the point where he said, when I practice at home, I practice with a glove on because I like it now. <laughs> How long did they wear the gloves for, I asked. For the duration, we had to. The switchboard lit up on that action show. I mean, not only was Talk Talk a minute and 56 seconds of unrelentless force, but here were this band, all black, with dyed black hair and a black glove on. And we didn't look like anybody. And we didn't sound like anybody. Here we asked Sean what his influences were for the music machine sound, because unlike most bands at the time, it was difficult to pinpoint. There were no obvious Beatles, Rolling Stones, or Bob Dylan influences. It was really something that was pretty unique for 1966 and 67. The whole thing came out of my... my, my Jesus Christ gave that to me. Well, what were, you, I mean, what were your favorite bands around, around this time? Let's see. Um, well, I, I can't say that, that the bands themselves were my favorite, but I had favorite records that, uh, because I'm, I'm basically so melancholy, I'm really a romantic, and, and uh, I, I really wanted the softer, mellower sound. As a matter of fact, that's, you know. You can really tell from No, no. No, because I, I liked the power of it, see? And I understood why everybody else did, too. But in my hearts of, heart of hearts, I really wanted to sing ballad. I've always wanted to. It's, you know, I think that's a common experience with a lot of artists in, in, in every artistic endeavor. They always end up succeeding at something that is at the bottom of their priority of what they want to do, really want to do. Because I know we were the hardest band, and we were the first band called the American Rolling Stones. I mean, that's a tired, hackneyed cliche, but we were the first band called that for a certain. Matter of fact, we were invited to Britain, but my manager never told me. And we were invited to play in the first Monterey Pop Festival, and of course we would have been on film. Yeah, might have helped a lot. He turned that down for some ridiculous gig in Baton Rouge or something. He never told me about it. A lot, a lot of terrible mistakes. We talked about the gear they used. The music machine had a sponsorship deal with Vox, so were invariably pictured with Vox amplifiers, but Sean explained that before then, they'd been using mostly Fender amps, including on the session for Talk Talk and Come On In. And I'll tell you, I made a mistake, though, because we, we recorded Talk Talk with the equipment that we had, which was a lot of Fender stuff and, and stuff that was thrown together, you know, with Keith's electronic brain, why he, he really, you know... He kept everything running, and he put this part into that part. I didn't know a thing about it, and still don't. So, but then when the band got rolling, truck, and we went down to Vox, and we got all this free stuff, you know, and it was like kids at Christmas. And we dragged it in the studio, and it completely changed our sound, you know. And uh, that was that was very hard. Well, I finally got smart and said, you know, let's get the old stuff out. And and, and uh, we had one session with the with the Vox stuff. We just took it out of the box and out of the cellophane wrappers and put it in the recording studio. We hadn't even played through it and try to do a session. It was a disaster.
is asleep with the dog at his feet and breathing oh so slightly. And now the sun is lightly wakening brightly. There's a chill in the air and mom's brushing her hair up in the morning silence. Watching the mirror for guidance. In a way you can say that the days are the same and I guess that's good. On a Saturday day they're all working away just like they should. In my neighborhood. Sean explained the music machine really were a garage band. He lived in San Pedro at the time, and the band practiced in his garage, often with kids from the neighborhood listening in. In 2016, my friend Ron Swart managed to locate the house, and the current owners invited him in for a quick tour. There they showed him, painted in black letters on a basement wall, the words, Music Machine, still there after 50 years. You can read that story in issue number 43, and we'll also share it along with some photos with Patreon subscribers. You know, the, the garage bands were, were really the entertainment, because the music machine rehearsed in our garage in San Pedro. And all the kids would come and listen, you know, on, on a Saturday afternoon. And, and, uh, I'll call and play. No, we never had any complaints. That's great. Never, never did. I mean, everybody was, you know, and they, the whole neighborhood was behind us, you know. They really were. You know? And in fact, the, that night that, that Carol A. put Talk Talk on when I got home after shaking my fist to the Lord, and I got home and the whole place, I mean, a whole neighborhood was at my house. They were partying. Yeah, it's a hit. It's a hit. We asked him if he ever imagined having a hit record. Yeah, yeah, I did. That's the reason. One of the problems I had was because I centered myself on having a hit record. I wanted a top ten record, and that's that's all I wanted. And so when it actually began to happen, I I really wasn't that surprised because I like a Chinese bulldog. I had taken a I had a plan, I had a 10-step plan, and I just took care of one step after another. And I got to eight, and it was almost there. So it wasn't really, you know, now now I look back on it. When I took Talk Talk the next day after we recorded it, I took it over to Dot Records, and the guy wouldn't let me out the door. Gave me this blank contract and said I could fill it in. And, and I could have gotten 14%, which is, which is a lot, but it a lot then. And Ross only made a deal for eight, see? so you can see. Sean explained the first album was recorded and rushed out hurriedly in between a rigorous touring schedule, which is why it contains several cover versions such as 96 Tears, Taxman, and the Neil Diamond song Cherry Cherry, which had actually been recorded for them to lip sync to during appearances on the local LA TV show, Ninth Street West. Yeah, with the problem, as I say, with the way that our management was booking us, it was just terrible. I mean, they put us on the kind of tours that burn you from the inside out. In fact, the Music Machine album, these, these songs were, we cut them at about 3 o'clock in the morning at Original Sound, not at RCA, which was the first mistake. And Mark's fingers were actually bleeding, and I could hardly talk, much less sing. And uh, we were really, really out of it. And, uh, but they wanted that out for December, see? So... We went. In, I mean, we cut and we cut the album in about eight hours. The first Music Machine album, Turn On the Music Machine, was released by Original Sound in December 1966, hot on the heels of the chart success of Talk Talk. The album includes a great slow-burning version of Hey Joe. Sean felt that the song would have made a good follow-up to Talk Talk, but instead Original Sound went with another of his brilliant original compositions, The People in Me. But Original Sound dropped the ball with the single by giving an exclusive to one local radio station, alienating an entire network of stations nationwide in the process. Hey Joe was the, we were the first people to do that version of it, and, um, and it was a killer in concert. Boy, the kids went nuts. 
it's my favorite version. And uh, yeah, well, then of course Hendrix did his and took it to England, had a hit with it over there, and then finally released it over here. And that's what that's what got him going. But you know, I got the idea from a guy named Tim Rose. Did you ever hear of Tim Rose? I know the name. He wrote Morning Dew and a couple of other uh, songs. Should have been a big artist, but he really got in his own way, as many of us do. Um, he he first really gave me the idea for for the slow version of Hey Joe. And then when it came out in the album, uh, after Talk Talk, which stayed on the charts for a long time, started to subside, the radio stations were playing Hey Joe. And so when I went back to Original Sound, I said, boy, we gotta take a hard look at this. Because I, I hadn't written the song, but there was no denying that, that it probably should be the next single, which it was so completely um, different from Talk Talk. You know, I didn't know how the people would respond to that. I didn't care. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I thought I was really in control, and, and I suppose up to a certain point you are when you have that attitude. It's when you have doubts that you get in trouble. And uh, so they didn't. They released the people in me, and uh, it, it, uh, Talk Talk made 14 nationally, 12 in record world, and uh, Billboard, I think it was 14, and I uh, can't remember the other one. People in me made 38 and 32, but there was a lot of reasons for that. And the number one was that Bill Drake then was the godfather of Top 40 Radio. He, was, he had 14 sister stations from KHJ all the way through to New York. And when he went on a record, it was a hit. And uh, our, quote, manager managed to give an exclusive to the people and me to a radio station at the end of the dial that had just started. I can't remember the call letters. I mean, they just went on the air, and he gave it exclusive and he completely alienated Drake and so Drake never did play it. He refused to play it. And yeah, sure it killed it because the guy had control of the markets. It was it was I mean it was really a stupid thing to do. The same guy that turned down the Monterey Pop Festival and the trip to England. That could have been about the biggest mistakes. I asked Sean if the music machine experienced a lot of trouble from people because of the way they looked to dress, especially while on the road. Oh, yeah. yeah. You ever refuse service in restaurants and that sort of thing oh, you're here? All the time. I remember pulling up into a gas station in the south somewhere. And, uh, I mean, we had like this big caravan of vans. And, you know, probably meant $30, $40 worth of gas. Back then, it was a lot of money. And so I, I said to the guy, I said, I'll fill them all up. And I said, incidentally, where's the restroom? And he said, well, the black restroom's over there and the white restroom's over there and you don't have one. <laughs> so that was indicative. I asked so, him if there were any other bands back then that they spent time with. Well, we did a short tour with the Buffalo Springfield. The problem of hanging out was, was there was no time for it. The only time that, that you ever had on your own was like a, like a party after the concert, you know? Yeah. And sometimes we get together. I got drunk with Eric Burden in New York one night because our manager knew that we were both just really independent people, and he knew that we weren't going to get along at all. So he locked us in this. We had this suite in the hotel room, and, and he put this bottle of VO because we both drank VO, and he knew that. And he put it in the middle, and he said, "I'm not going to let either one of you out of here until the bottle's gone." So we drank the bottle and proceeded to completely unhinge the door and take it right off. Went down to. We were supposed to go down for publicity. Now, Trudy Heller's trip was big club back then, and uh, so Eric was just, an, just he was an animal. <laughs> but, uh, uh, he, they put the big spotlight, and in the audience tonight, you know, we're just, I'm not proud of it at all, but we were just, just totally not there. And he said, what shall we do, you know? I said, well, I don't know. He said, let's take our gear off, and I, that means clothes, and as you know, you know. Jim Morrison used to like to do that, too. That was his favorite thing, take his clothes off. I asked Sean if he thought Jim Morrison and the Doors had been influenced at all by the music machine, as there are some similarities in their vocal styles and the use of keyboards, not to mention Morrison's famous black leather trousers. Yeah, he did listen to the structure of relative minors and how I used them and uh, some of the approach. I wouldn't say rip-off, that's too strong a term, but let's say a little... He must have played that a little, quite a lot when he was writing songs, I think. A little borrowing, you know. The voice as well, kind of, I think. Uh, and... Um, not to mention, of course, the black leather pants. <laughs> which, no, which nobody really noticed. They didn't notice the comparisons. Yeah. 
the persona. I should have gone as far as he did with the image and the persona, but it wasn't a, it wasn't something that he put on. That that was tragic because that guy was, was, extremely messed up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I never saw him, and I and I went out with him. With you. I never saw him when he wasn't on pills. I don't know what the real Jim Morrison was like. I don't think anybody. He was so afraid of his success, just absolutely scared out of his kidneys. He just was. He didn't know who he was, and he didn't know why. And uh, it was it was too bad, because he was a sensitive lyric writer. I really appreciate some of his images. Because I was I was the same kind of writer. Sean talked here about how the Music Machine's live show was structured with a seamless flow between songs and no stops at all. Well, I had plans like that. I mean, as a matter of fact, the, the original Music Machine album was supposed to have no cue gaps in between songs. I wanted the, the, the record, the album, to be the same as the group was. That's why I called it the Music Machine. We, we were the first band to play an hour of non-stop original music with musical segues and everything. I mean, nobody did it. And we were the first ones to do it. And I wanted the album to be that way, and they just thought I was nuts. They said, there's no way we'll, you know, the radio stations won't yeah, play it. And Sgt. Yeah. Pepper came out. I asked him about the inspiration behind one of my favorite Music Machine songs, Trouble. Well, I mean, it was... <laughs> uh, things on my mind, yeah, covers in I always had this propensity for using 50-cent words, you know, ascertain. Uh, I can't remember the lyrics now. I started quoting his lyrics to him, how to rectify the growing mental pain. What was the growing mental pain he was singing about? I think of waking up every morning, you know. Uh, I, I understand it now, as a Christian, I understand what the whole thing is about. Then, all then I can just see the, the great inconsistencies of the world and the, and the trouble that human beings make for each other. Even when I was a kid with mud on my knees, I couldn't understand that. I mean, I didn't understand why people were so hard on each other. I just thought, gee, this is terrible. There's no way to be. You know? um, there is a lot of negative feedback in this wrong trouble. Right. You know, I, I, I mentioned I another favorite from the first album, oh, that's Masculine funny. Intuition. That's really funny. That's one of my That's a way ahead of its time too. It really is. That that could be a that could be a, a punk hit today if they did it right. We asked him what bands he liked back then in the sixties. So, um, what 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 bands in Rag Alive did you like back at that time? Well, there was a couple of bands down the street from me that uh, that were really good, and and um, I did I did like the Love and Spoonfall because I like John Sebastian. Back then, I did. And they were really, and they had a lead guitarist named uh, Zell. Zell, yeah. And I knew him, and I knew Mama Cass, and they were kind of hanging out together because Mama wasn't. Mama Cass was in the big three with Tim Rose, that guy I was talking about. But there wasn't a there wasn't a a sixties, uh, at least I wasn't part of it. A club, you know. There wasn't a lot of it. The birds. Everybody was loners. Except because they were on tour, we were on tour all the time, and when we weren't crossing each other's paths on tour, you didn't really get exposed to that much, and we were out there. Now, um, the New York band, it was my favorite band, with Rascals. Yeah. Boy, those guys were really something. I, I thought they were uh, way ahead of their time. Yeah, they were great. Yeah, they, they really were. Felix could really sing. He could sing, he could sing like a, ba a black man, and back then, you didn't hear white guys that could scat you couldn't he, you couldn't hear they they didn't know how to do it i think that has something to do with the holy spirit too i really do because something happened and it happened to me at the same time i mean one day i could sing like a white guy and the next day i heard what the black people were doing and i could start singing that way and i noticed a lot of other people started doing it but but there was a time when that wasn't going on at all so that's a spiritual thing something definitely there yeah Next, the, um, we talked about the Sunset Strip of the 60s and which clubs the music machine played at. So you'd be playing clubs around there like the Hullabaloo and stuff like that? Well, we played the Aquarius Theater because we, we, uh, 
we, we packed it. We had them outside waiting. We played, played Melody Land in the round. We packed that place too. And then we played Anaheim with the birds. There were 50,000 people there. So uh, uh, we couldn't play. We played the whiskey once, but, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that the, the Music Machine in its prime was, was a big drawing band. And uh, if we'd been managed a little differently, I think we'd have lasted a lot longer. I know we would have. But yeah. we didn't, and that's the way it is. So we couldn't play clubs, you know. Next, we talked about the second Music Machine album, the Bonnewell Music Machine, released by Warner Brothers in 1968, well over a year after their debut. The original liner notes suggest the album took a long time to record. I asked Sean if that was true. Yeah, I just did, no, I just did a piecemeal here and there. Originally, I was going to call it Odds and Ends because it was just done by so many different people in so many different yeah, situations. It's a lot of different, yeah, you can kind of tell. Brian had a, more to do with that uh, on some of the, some of the uh, recording techniques, because the technology was awakening then. And, uh, but the main problem with the album is that there's 14 songs on it, and the grooves are too small, and so the sound of the record is terrible, and it, it just distresses me. You, you ought to hear Eagle Never Runs the Fly on a a nice fat stereo two-track mix. I remarked to Sean that the Bonniewell Music Machine album is a lot more diverse and experimental than the first Music Machine album. It defies classification. <laughs> it really does, because I was... Uh, I, I really let myself go out. I mean, I, I was experimenting with sounds and musical concepts that I'd never heard before, and, and then I had the second Music Machine in make. And I just happened to have a bunch of guys that, uh, that were crazy enough to do what I said. And they were good enough players where, where, I mean, we duplicated all kinds of sounds without electronics. I mean, I did all kinds of, uh, the Eagle Never Hunts the Fly is a good illustration of that. Yeah, what, what's that We asked Sean what the scary bird screech noise is on the song. Oh, that's a duck call. Really? <laughs> that's a duck call. My face got three shades of red. That's a scary sound. Isn't it something? Yeah, that would And also the way the, the uh, musically the way it's uh, structured is is uh, kind of strange because you don't use the fifth on the bottom normally. Uh, and because uh, it, it present gives you that hollow sound, so I wanted to fill that that, that empty space was something that was there, but felt like it wasn't, you know. There was all kinds of things like that, and they just thought I was nuts. Maybe I was. I asked him about the inspiration for The Eagle Never Hunts the Fly. Starvation. It's about uh, uh, people who have too much and ignoring people who don't have anything at all. I asked if that was a similar sentiment to the song Bottom of the Soul, which includes the line, if I can't eat the cake, I'll lick the bowl. Um, no, that's a more personal statement. That's a recognition that I had one and I was postponing it, doing anything about evolution. But the eagle wants to fly to eagles, referring to the United States. And, uh, well, I have to, many people say, oh, really? You know? You're so familiar with my stuff, I should assume that you know that, I guess. But that's, that's basically what, what it is. Um, it wasn't very well understood either. It came out as a single. I also asked Sean about another intriguing song on the Bonnewell Music Machine album, The Trap. What was the trap he was singing about? And the lines like, the feeling that the brotherhood is running out of time. I noticed that Sean really lit up whenever I quoted his lyrics to him. It was unexpected for him, and it clearly meant a lot because he really believed in his songs. What about the trap? It's really strange. Mm -hmm. The feeling that the brotherhood is running out of time. What does that mean? Well, I tell you, I never expected you to be so well versed in my lyrics. Um, I'm talking about the, the new world order. Uh, I have to, I have to say that uh, that is a, a a song from a visionary. You know, I mean, I, I, I was before I was a Christian, but I I sensed the the world hunger for domination under one government and uh, one monetary system and. Uh, the uh, falsehood of uh, the brotherhood of man, there is no such thing. Uh, the holistic movements, the uh, self-help stuff and everything like that. 
I really knew that that was on its way, and that's what the trap is all about. It's it's a, it's again it's a um, it's a personal pathetic, not pathetic, picture of uh, kind of a, a poor man's idea of the Book of Revelation. No. And a new one, another a really strange song is Discrepancy. Yeah. Uh, that was a whole new experiment because I was what I was doing in the background. You know, there's a counter melody and singing. That was a subconscious stream of thought, which which underlaid the, which is what was motivating the conscious thought of what the other fellow was singing. What I was singing on top. I didn't sing that song very well. But then I got into something weird because I started writing melodies that were next to impossible to sing. I mean, like three octaves in them. And I don't know why in the world I, I don't know what I was doing. I was just trying to experiment. Me, Myself, and I was another song we discussed. I just told him, I said, you know what, that, uh, that is really a forerunner of the me generation and also of the, of the technology of the computerized thing and everything. I mean, I, that's what I wanted it to sound like. It never did, but because they didn't have it. But that's, that's kind of a frightening song because it, it, it not only was I trying to do something that's happening right now, 10 years ago or even longer than that, but lyrically, it's, it really was the first me song, you know, there were, you know, the me generation was, which is what supposedly the 70s was. Maybe I should play you a couple of uh, outtakes. I've got one song that uh, Paul Buck, the guy that engineered, called Citizen Fear. This is right after uh, Bobby Kennedy was shot. And we, the two of us played all the instruments and everything on it. And oh, it is absolutely devastating. It's just... Uh, you talk about that subconscious stuff and, and, and everything, and they're, they're, I never forget, I'll never forget the record executives. They would sit there and they just, <laughs> they played again, <laughs> but they, it wouldn't touch you, so I'll lose my job if I put that record out. Next, I asked Sean about his solo album, Close, released by Capitol in 1970 and credited to T.S. Bonnewell. That, um, that was produced by Vic Briggs, who was the ex-lead guitarist for The Animals. And uh, I guess I thought I, I was I was I went totally the other direction, and I sold the rights to the name Music Machine to Ross to get out from under the contract because he wouldn't release. You know, he, I mean, he was Warner Brothers was uh, fouling me up really. They were too big and uh, disorganized really, to to do the whole thing, and I didn't have any faith in Ross, and I was tired of it. There were a lot of bands. I I mean, I'd be playing in. Uh, Texas, and I'd hear that the, the music machine was playing in Florida. You know, they did uh, they did a real number on it because it was easy. All you had to do was just dress yourself in black, dye, and put a black wig on, and put a glove on, and you could tell you know, And the screaming was so loud, nobody could listen to the music. But the Capitol album only came out in, in California, and that was uh, was kind of like a I don't know if Neil Diamond did an imitation of Johnny Mathis. Uh, <laughs> that that it was about there's four good songs. I thought the writing was very good. At that time, I I started with Forrest Hamilton management. I scored movies and I produced a couple of records. I went down to Watts and got all these people, black and white, and blue and green, and called them Zebra and produced a record for Blue Thumb. Wrote and produced it and they released it pretty well too. And uh, then uh, I got into. Uh, I just became totally disillusioned. Well, what happened was I got into uh, meditation and, and Eastern religion, and uh, I, my values really changed. And, and that coupled with the disillusionment I experienced uh, with my career, which was mainly engineered by myself, uh, 
I just kind of dropped out. And I gave, I had a couple of houses, I gave them away, and I did all kinds of things. I just filled up this Volkswagen van. I did the thing that you always heard that people did, and I don't think that many did it, but I actually did. I, I just gave it up. Burned out on the music business, Sean spent most of the 70s on a quest for spiritual enlightenment. A quest, he explained, that sent him down some strange blind alleys. Sean had been focused and effusive throughout the interview, but here the conversation took an unexpected turn into esoteric, spiritual territory. This wasn't the story we'd come for or expected, but it was something Sean needed to unburden himself of. His eyes lit up as he talked about the changes he'd been through, and we listened intently. I can still remember the intensity of the atmosphere in the room of that ground floor apartment. And I started uh, really searching for truth then, and uh, it took me uh, almost seven years to, to finally come to Christ. And I went through every blind alley and every dead-end road there is. I mean, I studied all that stuff. I went out of my mind and out of my body, and, and I went through the whole drug scene. And uh, I had some pretty interesting experiences. I'm writing a book about it. and. Uh, I got involved with Ekankar, which is a study of, of soul travel, of the knowledge of God through out-of-body experience. And uh, I didn't meet God, but I met a couple of... You know, it's one thing to, to be sitting there in a, in a movie chewing on popcorn and having your hair straight up on him. It's another thing to meet an actual demon. Quite another matter altogether. And that really started me on to... Uh, to finding Christ, because I, I realized there really was a devil, and when I realized that, then I knew that there had to be a God. And I knew that it wasn't, uh, that he wasn't found in the, in the Eastern uh, practices, because I had, you know, had a thorough working knowledge of all of that stuff. And I, I hadn't met him through that. I met, a, I met a fake God, a counterfeit, which is what's, that's the devil's job, is to build as many of those as he can to keep you from the truth. And, uh, when I finally met Christ, and uh, it's just a simple matter of knocking on the door. Here I'd gone, I wasted on how many years, and uh, it was so easy, so simple. And I tried to make it as complicated as I could. Uh, it was exciting, and, and I didn't do much writing. I mean, I did, but, and I did some real pirate rec recording, but, uh, it's hard for someone like me to return. I mean, I would, I, I'd like to be in the recording studio 12 hours a day, every day, because I'm really at home there. And I'd like to do all different kinds of music as long as it's Christ-centered, see? I mean, it, it, as long as it, it's something that it reflects uh, my eternal life, because everything else that I do that isn't part of what God has for me is going to perish right along with my old clothes, you know, and I, I don't want that, to, I, I'm wasting my time, and I don't want to waste any more time. Got a new one called Heaven Sent, we're getting ready to do our first album, and uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, this will, we, we may not be the, the first major breakthrough in terms of secular radio, but with the musical influences that I've had, and uh, the uh, uh, religious pursuits, that are under my belt, and the knowledge that I have of uh, the traps and the snares, and that, like I say, the so-called shortcuts, I, I think that the Lord is using this, and, and there's no question that He is, and I think that I have a real, I, I hope it's His plan to use me to, uh, to really present the gospel in a contemporary way that doesn't blow people down, you know, mm -hmm. that that you can, you can have fun. Christians aren't boring, I promise. You know? Nowadays, the concept of a Christian party is just, who wants to go to one? You know? What do you do? But uh, that's, it's, it's totally convoluted because it's not, you know, there isn't any joy like the joy of having a relationship with the creator of the universe. I mean, all things are possible and through him, and you're not, you're not self-destructing with self-delusions and all kinds of things. And only Christ can clean that out of your, your, your mind. Only the truth cuts through the big lie. The interview wrapped up here as Sean pulled out tapes of some unreleased music machine tracks and offered to play them for us.
Our jaws hit the floor as we listened to a half a dozen or so tracks that at that time had only ever been heard by a small handful of people. Point of No Return, Everything is Everything, Citizen Fear, King Mixer, Black Snow, Dark White, stunning, innovative songs, most of them as great as anything the band had actually released at the time. After our listening experience, we said our goodbyes and headed outside, blinking in the harsh late afternoon sunlight, our heads spinning with stories and music. I felt a sense of total elation. I couldn't wait to get home and put it all down on paper. And I couldn't wait to do it again, to find some other 60s musician and tell their story. And that's what I've been doing ever since. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. You can order the latest issue of Ugly Things magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyls, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, tell your friends, and spread the word. We would also really appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members will get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Ryger, and Derek Davidson. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.